trying to get back to the basics of great products. Power comes from sharing information. I try to convince people to slow down. Free. Yeah. Open. This is the Soak Dice Podcast. Hi, viewers and listeners. Before we go to the episode itself, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Aura. Aura is the company behind the health tech wearable that delivers personalized sleep and overall health insights that help you go into each day feeling rested and ready. The Aura Ring and the Aura app help you to know what's happening on the inside with personalized health metrics summarized into three simple scores, readiness, sleep, and activity. Aura helps you know why you feel how you feel and get the most out of your mornings, evenings, and nights. And we've been using it for years now with great results, improved sleep quality, and increased activity. And in recent years, we've become big sleep believers. Like sleep affects everything. It's mental clarity, efficient work, improved immunity, increased productivity. It starts with sleep. And better sleep it starts with aura. Both mental and physical recovery is key when it comes to staying productive as an entrepreneur or when working a high-paced job. So go check them out yourselves at auraring.com. Oh, and by the way, battery lasts up to a week. And then small caveat, once you try it, you might very well get hooked. Let's go to the episode. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Soaked by Slush podcast. My name is William von der Palen, and with me in the studio is Ona Poropudas. Hi, Ona. Hi, everyone. And with us in Sweden is Nick Dahl. Welcome, Nick. Hi, William. Hi, Ona. Thanks for having me. Super great to have you have you on board the podcast. Uh, could we start off uh, in a very traditional sense with you just giving you know, a brief introduction of yourself and, and uh, what you've been doing and, and what you're doing now. Yeah, of course. So my name is Nick Dahl. I work as a growth strategy lead at Spotify and I mainly work on global expansion. So I recently helped launch 80 new markets and 36 new languages for Spotify, which basically doubled our global footprint. So this was a huge milestone for us to make Spotify available everywhere for everyone around the world. So that was fantastic. Um, before that, I was at another Swedish tech company called Truecaller. And uh, that was also an amazing journey where we went from about 10 million to 150 million daily active users. And uh, we also tied up key partnerships with companies like Google, Samsung and Huawei that helped generate tens of millions of users for us. Um, and on the personal note, I'm, I'm from the south of Sweden, so basically the countryside outside Helsingborg. And I moved to Stockholm 12 years back to study at the Stockholm School of Economics. And uh, I've been working and living here since then. Cool, very cool. Uh, yeah, both Truecaller and Spotify. Obviously, Spotify is at least very, very well known to to all our listeners. But uh, Truecaller has also been a, a fantastic growth story, and and we wanted to to focus on growth today as as our hands-on topic and and kind of tap into your wisdom that you've uh, gathered during the year, years. So, maybe in a startup and company context, how would you define growth? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. The traditional definition is probably that you have a team working on a very systematic approach to solve problems and drive business metrics. And you normally have different skill sets ranging from product, engineering, insights, design, marketing. And then you also think about the whole funnel, right? You think about everything from acquisition to activation, retention, engagement, resurrection, and ultimately how you drive revenue for the company. 
but this can also look very different depending on what company it is. So if you're a small tech startup versus a, a more mature, bigger tech company, it will obviously look quite different. If you have a small team, you need to keep the scope more narrow and maybe start focusing on one part of the funnel where retention is normally a good start. Uh, but if you're in the fortunate position to have a bigger team, you can do experiments across the whole funnel and basically tackle bigger, bigger problem spaces. Yeah, exactly. So is that kind of the the you know the the growth function is is basically your team it, it's one person or it, it's the whole team and 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 that's the team responsible for creating the growth or is it kind of uh, are there other people how how cross-sectional in the company is growth uh, you have your head of growth you have your team but what what other people do you need to uh, make that growth happen i would say that like if you zoom out from specific functions it's important to have that kind of growth mindset across the whole company. So early on, it might only be the founders and they really need to have the growth mindset. But as the company matures, maybe you can distribute some of that trans- responsibility to maybe a, a PM, an engineer who can start tackle a couple of, of problems and start forming their own hypothesis of how we can grow. So ultimately it's it's probably spread, it should be spread across the whole company, but then you can have different uh, different functions that have more responsibility. You can have an independent growth team with a head of growth, or you can have it distributed across product, marketing, or business development teams. So it, that, that's why it's probably hard to say one single definition. It, it will look different uh, in different points of time. In a smaller team, how engaged should the CEO or founder be with growth, and how should they be involved in the process or the function itself? probably very involved. Uh, I can I can only speak from my own experience, but I know when I joined Truecaller, for instance, our founders were still very much involved in, in the growth of the company uh, and very much involved in the in the growth engineering team and like in all different parts of the of thinking about how we actually uh, experiment around it, but also how we make these bigger bets to step change growth. So uh, even if I joined when the company had been around for like five years, the founders was still very much involved in thinking about growth, being really curious about digging digging deep into data and understanding the consumers better. So I think that was one of our key success uh, recipes, I would say. Exactly. And and talking more specifically then maybe when you you are at the stage where you can hire a head of growth as you are now with, with Spotify, um, what are the responsibilities and and you know, the day-to-day uh, things you do as a head of growth and, and uh, your team. You, you already mentioned, you know, experimenting across the funnel, but maybe going into the more nitty-gritty stuff. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm not the only person uh, thinking about growth at Spotify. We have huge teams across R&D and, and marketing that, that think about this problem space. So I would say uh, that as a starting point. But a c- couple of common denominators, like when you work with this, is that you kind of have to uh, have to formalize a process about how you how you systematically identify new opportunities, size these opportunities, also how you think about setting strategy or how you make decisions that are actually data informed and not purely opinion based. So there's a lot of different aspects about the process that you set up to to make it a systematic approach. And we have a really strong framework for that, that if you, if you haven't seen it already, um, we've actually shared that externally. It's called the Thoughtful Execution Framework. 
that one of my uh, colleagues, uh, one of our principal designers, Anina, actually helped put together uh, a way how we think about how we execute different growth projects. So it's really good in like how you get that kind of theory behind your practices. So it talks about how you identify different goals, how you use data and insights to formulate your hypothesis, how you do different experiments to arrive at different solutions, and then how you draw conclusions from that that basically feedbacks new initiatives that you can work on. So if you haven't read it, check out our design blog. It's a great read, actually. Yeah, that sounds like good good read. And it's it's funny how, how uh, certain companies have started publishing kind of these tactics uh, they've used quite openly. So I think that's very helpful for many many entrepreneurs and companies. And maybe we can create better practices as a result of that. Um, so that's kind of a framework you can then use. Uh, so this is the mindset you you. Uh, the experimental part seems to be a quite uh, big part of it and then using data and, and then starting all over again and, and just doing, doing, doing. So it's kind of a scientist mindset, if you will. Uh, but what are some some ways and approaches uh, you can use? Maybe now talking at quite early or looking at quite early stage companies for founders getting started with growth. Uh, is it, you know, creating organic content? Is it doing manual sales? Is it trying to create a viral campaign? What are some, some of the best uh, and tested ways to, to get started? That's also a great question. Um, there are obviously some channels that are, that are more common than others. You have, like you mentioned, performance marketing, you have virality you can think about, you have content. So that's a great place to start, but it's probably a very it's probably a very simplistic way of thinking about it and it probably assumes that you already have a strong product market fit and a product that that already people love to use and you have traction on it so before thinking about the channels you use for growth i would say that you need to think about removing any kind of access barriers to use it like are you available in the markets that are relevant for you do you have the languages supported that your users actually speak do you have any data or device constraints that you need to think about that could worsen the user experience when it comes to app speed or performance? So before even thinking about the channels or avenues of growth, I would like zoom out and think about the fundamentals of your product and make sure that that works really, really well. We still work with that at Spotify and we still worked with it uh, even my, during my last years at Truecaller. So, that's probably a never-ending way, like path of how you can continue to improve the product itself, rather than doing growth hacking on different channels, etc. But that's that's the later part that's also important. Then, you know, a lot of talk, especially when uh, talking about uh, well, digital businesses, uh, the word growth hacking and growth marketing are, are used quite a lot, but especially growth hacking seems to be all, almost this kind of religious thing that people talk about and that is supposed to solve every problem you know companies have. Uh, but what is it actually? Is it the, the same thing as this experimental scientific, uh, scientist mindset or is it something else? Some parts of it are similar and I think you can learn a lot from it. Uh, at least the way I, I understand it is that when you Many times when you hear about growth hacking, you hear different stories about how a, a lonely person uh, looked at a problem and magically solved it and saw exponential growth from just doing ad hoc stuff and not really doing it in a systematic way. So it's almost like a, a fairy tale that sounds too good to be true and that's probably why it's called that you hack it. Uh, there's probably also a lot of, a lo a lot of behaviors that, are, that can help boost your growth short term. 
but maybe not work in a very sustainable way to grow the company. So like you can send a lot of notifications to get more daily active usage if you want people into the product, but then probably many people will maybe remove notification access and not come back because they feel it's too spammy. So it's not a great way to build growth sustainably. Uh, and there are other quite interesting examples of this. Like one of my favorite examples, I think one, one person that I've written a lot of good content around this is James Courier. Uh, he's kind of a legend when it comes to talking about network effects. And he has a really good post about how you see different channels emerging and basically coming and, coming and going. So you have email marketing, you have SMS marketing, you have the rise of social platforms or mobile platforms when Android and iOS was still new, which it was early on for both Spotify and, and Truecaller. Mobile platforms wasn't a, a given channel that you would invest heavily in. And now more lately, you see platforms like Podcast on the rise where you can build new services on top of that um, going forward. And another great example of that was how Synga, uh, the gaming company, built basically all their acquisition on Facebook when that emerged as a platform. And obviously they saw like rocket growth early on from like how they were able to tap into notifications and the news feed for discovery. But as soon as Facebook controlled that platform and shut down some of the access and shut down the support for flash games, 80% of their acquisition died out and 50% of the company value. So it's also important not to be too dependent on one channel. You have to think about multiple different avenues uh, and think about these new emerging platforms uh, that can come up that you really need to consider. And if uh, companies or if kind of growth teams get it right, you talked about hyper growth. What is the growth that can be expected um, if the team gets all the stars aligned or so on for like a series A startup or so? There's probably not uh, one golden rule to it. I've heard many different benchmarks, so I can, I can speak for what I've seen at the companies I've worked and some companies that I've, that I've also interacted with. Um, but before Series A, I believe many people expect triple digit growth uh, at least. So I know many investors expect 20-30% growth uh, month over month if you're a pre-Series A company. Uh, and then maybe between series A and, and C, if you manage to have 30 to 100% growth, that's probably still good. And post series C, if you manage to have 30%, that's probably a really strong number as well. But it also differs between consumer products, B2B products, uh, different industries, different verticals. So this, I would say this is probably skewed towards more consumer facing apps. Should you be systematic with the growth from the get go? Uh, so you say you have a, you have an idea, you have a, a company idea, you want to test it, you need to find product market fit, uh, you need to get rid of, of uh, the limitations of your products that you mentioned. Uh, is this already the time to, to kind of implement this growth thinking, uh, this experimentation cycle, or is it something that comes along once you've found product market fit and have something to, to tweak that actually works? I believe you, you can be systematic almost from day one. Uh, I listened to one of your other podcasts with uh, Rahul Vora from Superhuman as well. And uh, lo love that product, by the way. And uh, he talks about how they 
work with like an engine to find product market fit, right? And that's very early stage when you're trying to figure out product market fit. So even before that, even if you're just about to start a company, you can put that in a system and like how you how you size different opportunities, how you size dif different problem spaces and what kind of solutions you can arrive at rather than just doing this sporadically and just sprinkle out different thoughts or ideas. I think you can be systematic from day one. Um, so I really like that kind of approach that you can do it late stage, early stage, uh, as long as you have a, a common framework with the people you work with to kind of size those opportunities. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so, so let's say I'm a, I'm a founder now, I, I have a new business idea, it's, um, it's a new lemonade ordering app, for instance, whatever. Uh, and and I've, I've founded it, I have it, the app is downloadable and, and I'm now trying to figure out, you know, uh, on the one hand, if, if someone is interested in buying my, my lemonade from the app, but also the best ways to, to kind of get my first user and get the, get the word out. How should I approach this? What, what would you do if you were, you know, the, the head of growth at my lemonade app company? Is this a is this a real idea that I can that I can join or is it? Yeah, it, it depends on your one. answer. I think this is kind of an interview now. Yeah, no, great great idea. Uh, let's talk more about it after the podcast. And uh, I think it all comes down to that you need to be really curious about understanding uh, your potential audience, like who are the users, uh, and understand what kind of success metrics will be early on for you to get traction. So. If it's this early, like you just have an idea and you're just about to start, it, I think it would be all about talking to the consumers you're going after. Get their feedback early on. How does the lemonade taste? Is there, is there any other type of flavors they would want? Uh, where will this be? Where will this product be relevant? Is it, is it in Finland in the slushy winter days or is it uh, in some other sunny, sunny country across, across other parts of the world? So there you really need to just speak to users and figure out um, their needs is it solving a real problem uh, before you do before you have that done then it's hard to focus on like should you do performance marketing to for people to discover lemonade for instance great and um, when companies mature how do the strategies and tactics need to change along the way because some strategies can become saturated or there can be kind of diminishing growth to be seen through different tactics. So how does that affect uh, how to move forward? Yeah, it probably changes, uh, as you say, during the, the lifespan, the lifespan of the product and the company. So if you start out, you, you find the right audience, you start seeing traction with that audience, then you can actually start thinking about how do we how do we do how do we use these different growth channels like is it going to be a very viral product is it going to be something that we can invest heavily in in acquisition around and like that's when you can think about the growth channels and look at the funnel also like the people you get in uh, is it a healthy funnel like does does retention really flatten out like from people coming in do you see recurring behaviors of people coming back or or is it basically a steep decline that churns out to zero very quickly, then you don't have it, right? So once you see a healthy funnel, then you can probably start experimenting across that funnel and see improvements in different parts, if it's retention or more top funnel with acquisition. And once you see a healthy funnel, that's when you can start thinking about these more bigger bets of how can we really step change growth? Like, is it some market expansion we need to do 
Is it uh, some key partner or platform that we can tap into to really reach these new audiences? Uh, it could be so many different things. Uh, like you can have a you can have a feature strategy where you think about what product features do we need to build to evolve this product and build more engagement or a stronger retention. You can have a a product market fit strategy, which is not just relevant in the early days. I would say it's relevant uh, all along, because even if you find product market fit with an early audience, you need to find it for new audiences and in new markets. And then you can have uh, a team thinking more about growth strategy and the distribution channels you use. So it's uh, there's an endless sea of things you can do. Uh, so it's much more like your work is probably to think about how you keep keep your scope narrow and what should you start with first. And does it change at all if you say you you do a big founding uh, founding round and you you uh, funding round and you get a lot of uh, cash to spend, so to say? Uh, should you be more experimental or just double down on the things that uh, have already worked and and probably you get the funding in the first place because you're doing something that works? But should you then just you know double down or should you also use some of that? that budget to, to try new avenues. Are we still talking about your company now, William? The, <laughs> well, the same it, one? Let's see. I, I'm not looking for investors right now, but in, in general. Okay. Um, it, that's also a good question. Like if you get a big, big investment and you actually have some money now to experiment with, does it, does that make sense? Or does it, uh, will it really change the dynamics for, for your company? And I normally look at it like how, how does your unit economics for, for your business look like? If you look at the lifetime value of your customers versus the uh, customer acquisition costs, basically the LTV to CAC ratio, is that positive? If, if that's higher than one, basically you earn more money than you pay to acquire customers. If that's positive, then yes, this makes a huge difference. Then you can take that investment and just pour that more into that channel and accelerate growth. You basically uh, get a much, much higher speed with the same kind of growth trend that you see. Uh, if you don't have that, if you have uh, unit economics that are worse, so that ratio between your lifetime value and the cost for acquiring a user is negative, then this will only be like a, a short-term bet. You will run out of money, you will not get anything of it back, uh, and maybe you need to rethink um, how, how you spend that. Exactly. And then, you know, is there, is there a big, uh, big difference between thinking about growth at, at companies like Spotify and True Color, uh, True, True Color, which are, uh, B2C companies, uh, and then thinking about growth at, you know, a platform, platform business or accounting business or any, any, you know, B2B business, do you need to have a different approach or is it essentially the same things you, you need to be doing? I'm sure there are many differences uh, and I'm humbled to the fact that I haven't really worked that much in, in B2B. So probably someone in that space is better off to, to tell you the difference. But in general, I would say I would expect that it's like focusing on fewer customers rather than purely on the scale of like making a product available everywhere. So it's probably more about fewer customers, longer iterations in, in like the results that you're seeing and the experiments you do. Uh, it's probably also more about perfecting the product for a certain audience that you go after rather than, rather than throwing the net slightly wider where you can actually see a fit with the first audience and then iterate on that to broaden it. So 
the I would expect that the dynamics are quite different, but uh, I'm sure someone else has deeper knowledge in this in this space. Right. We have to invite somebody with B two B. Yeah, we need to find find yeah, a would guru. Love to listen to that. Yeah. Um, then diving in on True Color and Spotify, can you walk us through how did you or the team at first at True Color uh, approach growth? How did you build the process? How did you get it started? Um, yeah, start from there. Yeah, first of all, I, I have to say that like when I joined True Color and Spotify, these were both proven products. Uh, they had a fantastic product market fit uh, and they had really strong traction uh, for growth as well. So I have so much to thank the teams before me for kind of laying that foundation that we could just continue building on and help accelerate that. Um, but if we start with Truecaller, uh, it was such a, such a unique journey. Like when I joined, uh, and, th and this is a story that I probably haven't told that many people, only my close friends and, and some of my colleagues knowing about it. So it's a world premiere. <laughs> but uh, uh, when I joined, we were basically in, in fundraising mode uh, and we were about to raise our Series C with uh, Atomico and Kleine Perkins. So it was a lot of action going on. Uh, and when I joined, we were in between CFOs. So we didn't really have someone who, who, who led that proce process from the finance side and they said, hey Nick, you, you studied economics, so can't you join in on this and support that? So I got the opportunity to work really closely with uh, our legal counsel and our, our founders to basically set up the data room, the cap table, uh, everything from pitch decks to basically every single document that's ever been created about this company, right? So you look into the heart of the company uh, and get to see everything about growth metrics, financial metrics, strategy, like where the company is heading. So that really, I realized it now afterwards, how much that was like the best onboarding experience you could ever wish for and to really understand the fundamentals of the business. So I got insight into how important different product parts were or how the partnership strategy played a role or how the local market insights that we had with local teams uh, also played a hugely important factor. So that kind of set me up to for the rest of my time, like the next five, five almost six years at Truecaller. So that was a very unique uh, experience. Uh, maybe hard to have as your regular onboarding process, but if you ever get the chance to be part of it, uh, I would jump on an opportunity like that. It could build a simulated, uh, simulated uh, fundraising experience uh, for everyone to to go through. Uh, yeah, it's not uh, it's not a not a bad idea actually. <laughs> yeah, but okay, obviously that's a very good way to to get the information, understand the business, and then start trying things. So you kind of got, gather the knowledge. But um, what were some of the the tests uh, you started started running? Did you change anything? Was something? Maybe something something wasn't wrong in that sense, but uh, what were some of the the like technical uh, stuff that then ended up working quite well for you? Yeah, so one other thing I came to think about is that I, I kind of work I, I wrote a blog post around this that uh, you can you can find if you just Google true color growth, um, which basically talks about the growth machine that we built out or like the framework that we had across different functions that all fed into how we as a company so uh, you can check that out afterwards and ping me if you have questions or thoughts about it uh, but I would say early on like my first couple of years 
a lot of our work was focused on the partnership strategy because we saw an opportunity that many of the smartphone manufacturers out there had potential to drive millions and millions of users for us. So rather than, like early on, we didn't really have a, a growth engineering team that worked on experiments. It was more distributed across founders, product, marketing, and the business development team. So for us, we, we managed to drive a lot of new growth in, in new markets, purely with that like acquisition strategy working with smartphone manufacturers. And then we also did more strategic partnerships with Google and Apple that kind of helped open up important parts of the Android and, and iOS platform for us to work well as a, as a um, communications app on the, on the operating system, right? It was only like two years in that we formed the first growth engineering team. And this was seven years after TrueColor was founded. So that's the first time that we really had dedicated engineers working on experimentation. They were looking at uh, how we drive subscriptions, how we drive referral programs, or how we build specific products that were localized for the next billion users that we obviously had a strong fit with in India and Africa and Latin America. So we did a lot of specific product development for those markets, uh, actually in close collaboration with strategic partners like Google as well, who have a lot of focus on those markets. And how was the growth team then built at True Color? Um, so seven years in, you're starting to think you need a team. How 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 did you approach that? Um, was it from inside the company that you kind of started recruiting people into the team from marketing and engineering or from outside the company and how big was it how was it structured yeah early on uh, it was built from from people that have been in, in the company for some time so it was not like an external external recruitment of of, an, of a completely new team it was more about first of all we had really strong support from from our founders like uh, our ceo alan uh, basically helped build this growth team and make sure that we had engineers that were dedicated to the to this space. So I think you really need to have strong support internally because if you purely form a, a growth team without that support, uh, it can easily be that you run a lot of experiments that can disrupt other parts of the product development. So you really need to have that backing from, from key stakeholders in the company. But initially it was like, one, two, eventually three, four engineers. Now I'm sure that it has grown much, much, much bigger, but it wasn't a huge team. Um, it was, uh, yeah, during my time, it was mainly like four engineers uh, that I worked closely with. And then we also had data science support and design from other parts of the company. It was not really like a fully, fully independent um, team like that. It was more like bringing in, depending on what kind of project we were looking at at that time. And how has that, uh, or how was that uh, different than from Spotify? Obviously, Spotify is a very, very well-known brand today to to most people and have has a lot <laughs> and a lot of users. So you said you just opened eighteen new new markets. Yeah, eighteen uh, new markets. Yeah. So, kind of, um, what was the reason it happened? You know, only now, uh, this this late, kind of. Um, uh, you know what it can't be lack of ambition so it's probably something something else and and what how, how has your role at spotify differed from what you did at true caller 
So that's the interesting part about Spotify. It's such a uh, such a successful brand and like really really strong traction in all the markets that we have been live. So I was also that was also one of the parts that that made me so excited about the opportunity uh, when I started talking to the to the team and the people heading the growth team at Spotify. They were live in 79 markets and 24 languages. So like I mentioned before, we more than doubled that now. And what they realized was that we really need to rethink our way of how we go to market. Like if we try to perfect the product and build everything uh, super localized for each and every market that we need to go live in, it's probably gonna take more time to, to, to be live in all these markets, right? So we had to rethink the approach and that was kind of what they, uh, how they shaped the role. There were no role when I was when I was talking to them. So they basically shaped the role with some of my previous experience of doing similar stuff at Truecaller because we had this in, inverted set of markets, right? We were big in all the markets where Spotify wasn't live. It was India and Africa and Latin America, like many of our strongest markets were markets that Spotify hadn't yet invested that much in. Um, but basically we needed to rethink that and go to market with a much more, much more of an MVP product or basically our global, our global proposition and take that live because the global proposition is really, really strong and something that we can reach the first audience that we're, that we're looking at in these markets. And from that we can iterate and build a much, much better localized experience. So that's why we rolled out these languages as well. And that's why we will continue to invest more in localization around it. Right. And uh, yeah, you mentioned those, uh, those markets where Spotify um, aren't that big yet. Is, it, is there a difference in, in customer acquisition costs, just out of curiosity, in, in kind of some of the developing markets, uh, as opposed to, say, you know, the Nordic countries or um, America? Uh, is it cheaper to, to get customers or is it, is it more expensive because it's harder to reach or, or how does that look? Yeah, I will answer this looking at purely like public data that you can also, that you can also find. So if you purely look at like Google or, or Facebook, when you think about acquisition, it's very clear to see that yes, it's going to be more costly to acquire a customer in the US versus other parts of the world, right? So yes, there are differences and it can it can probably differ uh, yeah obviously depending on what what channel you're going after etc but there are definitely differences in it and uh, yeah looking from the the founder uh, perspective still before now going back to my lemonade app um, what uh, other hire should I do before I'm looking for a head of growth uh, you know do I need a head of marketing or I probably need a head of product since I can't code. Uh, but what kind of uh, other hires did, do I need to do before I hire you? I would say in, in, in this case, when you're early on in the journey, you probably don't need a, a head of anything. You, you, need, you need people that are curious to solve problems, that are curious about data. So it doesn't really need to be in a specific role. But I would probably, like depending on what space and what you're trying to solve, but it's probably a good way to start with some some product manager, some engineer, and maybe also a data scientist or someone looking at the analytics part early on. I would say that that could be quite core. Then you can complement that with with other functions later down the line. But if you if you just want to bring in someone who think about this space, probably a, a PM who's looking at this would be a good start. 
And what's the point when a company should hire a dedicated growth person, the first one? Um, what's the kind of like series or is there a mark where companies know that now's the time? There's probably not one given time, but if you have a strong traction and you have uh, teams that are well set up and you know that the product is growing, that's probably a good time to bring in someone who can then think about how you accelerate that and how you step change the growth. So early on, that's why it's so important to have like technical founders or people who understand and can do many of the experiments early on by themselves. Uh, or at least have it as part of the founding team so that you can do much of this before you really bring in someone someone else who can start building on the work that you have already started. And you mentioned that the company needs to have across the board a, a growth mentality. So is this something that can truly or can never truly leave the, the founders table? They should always obviously be a bit invested in in growth even though they have a growth function growth team in place. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I know how curious our founders at both Spotify and TrueColor are, how, how much they continue to learn and educate themselves and like continue to invest in their own personal uh, journey for learning. So uh, at TrueColor, I, I, I know how much we looked at like being really, really user obsessed and looking at app store reviews, looking at social feedback looking at customer support uh, and what, what's the most inbound questions that we get from those channels and talking to users, doing field studies and user research. Like you can never be too obsessed about that space to really understand what is true and what you need to, like what, what are the real story behind the data that you're seeing. You can sit and, and look at dashboards and like see high level patterns, but you really need to talk to people and basically have a combination of the qualitative and the quantitative side, right? That's how you get something that's actionable as well. Yeah, one striking con uh, contrast is actually one one person we had on this podcast, John Schoolcraft from Oatly, who is very notorious for saying that you don't need data and you don't need to have a marketing team and, and you just need basically, you know, to try things, do experiments, uh, get the zeitgeist, so to say. And he, he's very... Um, opinionated about this. I find it's very interesting because they've had obviously a tremendous success in their field now in, in recent years. Um, so there's something to, to what he says, obviously, but do you think this is something that could work more broadly? Uh, because I don't really think that Oatly doesn't care about growth or creating like a good team. It's, it's his way of speaking. It, they are probably hyper-focused on creating a very good brand and very good way of communicating. But there's still something to what he says, because he it seems that they leave a, a lot of room for creativity and trial and error. So maybe what are some of the, I I, don't, I know you don't work for Oatly and don't know the ins and outs of the companies, but are, are there like some, some uh, things from the mindset that they created that you could take away also for a more data-driven team? Definitely. Uh, it's probably not uh, a, a, like a, a fact either of them, I would say. Yeah, you need to think about striking the balance between being like data informed, not data driven. Like you should not only act on data because sometimes data can be skewed as well. Data can be flawed. So you need to have some kind of intuition and judgment around uh, the stats you're looking at, right? So I don't think it's either or, uh, but it's an interesting approach. I mean, there's other 
other famous founders like like Steve Jobs for Apple who also had that had that intuition right that uh, they that consumers weren't hundred percent sure what they wanted before they experienced it so I'm sure there could be some level of intuition behind it but me for me personally I I rather like try to stay close to the close to the ground and really try to understand talking to users I think that increases the probability for us to to know and be better informed when we make decisions but it can base it can def- definitely be different in different situations mm. I think creativity can look very different in different functions as well but do you think that creativity has a role in growth and how would that be shown or how would that kind of manifest yeah definitely uh, you need to be creative in the in 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 like what new opportunities look at um, and try to think about things that we haven't pr- that we haven't tried before there's a lot of creativity in that and also a lot of creativity needed to understand like even when you look at different patterns like how can you come up with creative solutions to solve that so even if you have um, have data that and a scientific approach behind it there's still so much room for for being creative when you develop new products when you when you kind of shape different even like when you shape different business models being creative in that space like uh, you can be creative with excel <laughs> trust me so, so there uh, there are definitely room for creativity in in all aspects of it and maybe to to round off uh, what are some good resources books videos uh, blogs articles for uh, founders or just people uh, curious in in growth to to check out there are so many i would say uh, i have to give one shout out to a podcast available on spotify about spotify called uh, it's basically called spotify product story uh, quite new podcast uh, where a lot of our early early uh, employees talk about the how the growth of the company and also a lot of useful like tips and tricks on on product strategy so i would definitely listen to that uh, but then if you're also looking to to like pursue a career in growth i would say you can do any of any kind of growth program out there uh, there are two that i really appreciate uh, that i feel have a really strong strong foundation which is reforge growth series based out of san francisco uh, with really like good guest speakers and really good frameworks how to think about growth and then there's a european counterpart called uh, growth academy based out of berlin which uh, a close friend of mine, Nico, uh, who used to do growth marketing at the Google Assistant. So he really knows what he's talking about. Uh, So check that out, Growth Academy and uh, Reforge Growth Series. Superb, very good. Uh, Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Nick. I highly appreciate all the hands-on tips and and, uh, I think you nailed the interview for the Lemonade app. So I'll give you a call (laughs) call after the podcast as well. Thanks, thanks for having me. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all the listeners tuning in. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed your visit to that conversation as much as we did. Now, if you want to stay updated and keep in touch with us, please subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us on Spotify. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and then Facebook. You guessed it. Soap by Slush. Thank you, people, for listening. Bye-bye.